Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spirited community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in every person. It is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Will you say with me the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith? In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning. My name is Erin Walter, and it has been one of the great joys of my life to grow up and be a part of this church. I come to you today as your lay leader for the last time. I'm starting my ministerial internship at Wildflower Church next Sunday. It means everything to me to be here with you guys today, and it's Pride Weekend, and it's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful place to be right now, and I'm so excited for all that's ahead for this congregation. I'm sure I'll be sneaking in the back when I can. I want to say that the ministers of this church have been crucial in my own ministerial formation. Chris, Maddie, and Meg, I cannot thank them enough. As I told the first service, Meg was the first minister after several ministers that I had told that I wanted to be a minister. And she was the first one to say, how wonderful. <laughs> the others were very jaded and they were like, you don't want to do that. <laughs> it's a testament to the joy that she brings here and that we all feel. Our call to worship this morning comes from Annie Dillard. We are here to abet creation and to witness it, to notice each other's beautiful face and complex nature so that creation need not play to an empty house. Every time we're together, whether it's on a Sunday morning here or another day when the church leaves the building, Every time we are together, we have people in the crowd who come from every major world religion in their background or their practice, or they come from neo-paganism, or they come from humanism or atheism, and people do wonder what holds us together as a group. One of the things is our faith in community and our love for justice, and we express that in our mission in this church We wrote it on the wall and we say it together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. This morning I have the honor and pleasure of reading an essay by our own Meg Barnhouse. It's called A Life Well Spent, and it comes from her book, The Rock of Ages at the Taj Mahal. One night, I heard an old man say, I had wasted my life. I began wondering what it would take for me to say that I had wasted my life. I could have lived a life where I only watched TV and cleaned house. 
Then I would lie on my deathbed and remember my life while wailing and gnashing my teeth in that clean, clean house. I could have been a company woman, working 60 hours a week and making six figures, too busy for my family, my church, my garden, and taking small comfort in remembering that I'd never missed a day of work. As I lie on my deathbed, what do I want to remember? Right now, my relationship with my father is pained. I asked him four or five years ago to stop quoting the Bible to me because it made me feel like throwing up and screaming. He stopped immediately, even though the Bible is his reference, his rule, and his delight. We continue to talk every two to three months, but he has less and less to say. I don't know what I want to do about it. Part of me wants to give up. It would be a relief to surround myself only with people who are like-minded. I don't want to remember being cut off from my father because he doesn't talk to me the way I would like him to talk to me. I don't want to look back on drifting away from my family because they are devoted Christians and I am Christian in ethics and pagan in practice. In the Wheel of Life, people told Elizabeth Kubler-Ross that when they went toward the light, they were shown how all our lives are intertwined. Our actions and thoughts affect the universe like ripples in a pond. People reported hearing the question, What service have you rendered? The light asked them to consider whether they had made the highest and best choices in life and whether they had learned the ultimate lesson of unconditional love. I wish I'd never read that passage. I'm not great at unconditional love. I try, but lots of people annoy me. Even when I have the time, attention, and patience to love unconditionally, I'm not sure what it involves. I know it doesn't mean being sweet and do-eyed and telling people they're wonderful no matter what. I know unconditional love involves disagreement and challenge. So how do I know in each situation what unconditional love involves? What would be a life well spent? For a regular, somewhat irresponsible, but often charming person without a lot of moral fortitude, like myself. I heard one woman say she just wanted to live long enough to grow every kind of tulip there is. Another friend said she wanted to live long enough to see her daughter struggle with a 17-year-old daughter just like her. What would satisfy me? I will be glad if I have raised my children with honesty and love. If I've made music with other people. If I've seen beauty and loved it. If I've learned how to get along with my relatives. If I've made soul connection with spirit, friends, and lovers. And if I've claimed my right to tell the truth as I see it. Oh.
and I want to be wonderful. That's all. I wrote that when I was very young, her age, and I'm very responsible now, so don't worry. (laughs) Now's the time in our service when we breathe deeply together, we become quiet. The world's wisdom says that it is in the quiet and the stillness that we find our balance, that we find our center, that we sink our roots deep into the heart of compassion, that we attain clarity and wisdom. It is in this place that we begin to open our hearts to the suffering of those around us, those who are sick or scared. Those who are in peril because of war or natural disaster. We also open our hearts to those around us who are rejoicing. And we learn to be good companions to the people around us, whatever their state of mind. Let us seek clarity. Let us seek wisdom. Let us enter into the wise silence together. I'm going to tell you some of what I learned in my 15 years as a therapist. It's fun for me to talk about that because, you know, as a therapist, all you can do is I knew I needed to quit when I got down on my knees in front of my chair and said to this poor young woman, please don't marry that guy. (laughs) I was like, honey, you're done. You're done with this job. So over the years, I've noticed um, that enjoying your life is to a great extent a choice And a lot of people kind of drift through waiting for things to be perfect before they let themselves enjoy, but um, you wait a long time before things are perfect. And so I'm going to talk about how to enjoy your life um, really by coming at it backwards and talking about techniques for making yourself miserable, which I have noticed. And one of the first techniques by which people make themselves miserable is they try to make other people do right. Now, you know, your uncle is always going to drink too much at family gatherings and start talking about how terrible the president is. And there's really nothing you can do that's going to short-circuit that, unless you start talking about it first, in which case he'll just join in. And your parents are always going to bail your big brother out of the financial adventures he gets into. And you can gently suggest that they not do that anymore because they're not teaching them anything, but they will say, oh, we know, and then they'll do it again. 
And your little sister is always going to give that guy another chance, even though he's bad for her. She knows he's bad for her. And um, you could try to tell her that he's bad for her, um, but she won't hear you. But later on, when they're broken up, she'll come and she'll say, now, why didn't you tell me? (laughs) And then you're just going to have to stare her down. So you can't make people do the right thing, but you can influence certain situations. Rarely, you can influence, okay? Now, you know how hard it is to make your own self do right. Can I get a witness? Thank you. So taking on somebody else and trying to make them do right is like double, triple, ten times as hard. But you can influence. And sometimes, uh, one of my favorite books of wisdom is the I Ching, a Chinese book of wisdom. And sometimes it says, the window of influence is open. So when the window of influence is open, you can say one or two things, and then the window of influence closes, and no matter what you say, you're speaking to shiny hard glass. So when the the window of influence is open, you say your piece, and then you subside. Because if you don't subside, if you keep hammering, Many of us who are extroverts feel that just a few more words will do the trick. No, you're not. Thank you. Um, (laughs) Like, you're not doing what I said because perhaps you didn't really truly understand what I said. So let me say it again. And if you talk too much about it, then your voice gets internalized in their head as the voice of health, and then they revolt against it, as if they would revolt against you. They can't even hear their own voice anymore. Does that make sense? So your voice has overlaid their voice. And so you've done what I call waking up the inner mule. You've woken up their mule inside, and suddenly they're just going to be like, "Mm, I'm not doing anything. No. And then you've lost So you say your piece, you say it once, you say it maybe twice, and then you subside. And sometimes it comes down to this. When a person in your life is behaving incorrectly, I get that phrase again from the I Ching, because it's not a phrase in our current Western culture. When a person is behaving incorrectly, you withdraw from that person. You just withdraw until they begin behaving correctly again. When I used to tell my clients or suggest to my clients, what would happen if you just withdrew from this situation until they began behaving correctly again? They would say, so you want me not to care? You want me just to give up? No. I don't want you not to care. I don't want you to give up. I want to suggest that there's another way to care, another way not to give up that involves standing there and being quiet and not involving yourself in that situation anymore. My Aunt Ruth uh, was a psychiatrist. I've talked to you about her before. A psychiatrist and a theologian with uh, seven children, not 12. I'm sure they seemed like 12 at a while. Seven children, uh, six boys and a girl. Yeah. So what she used to say is, if someone you love is doing something you can't stand, you just say your prayers and watch it like TV. So you care, but you just stop trying to control, and you stop trying to influence. If the window of influence is closed, you just say, I know you'll figure it out. 
I know you'll figure it out. I care about you. I'm standing here caring about you. And you have to not give up. The I Ching, again, calls this bringing a lawsuit. If you decide somebody's the way they are, they're never going to change, I'm never going to get anything different from you, then you've brought a lawsuit, and the I Ching advises against that. They advise that you always keep some hope that the person's going to surprise you. Always be open to being surprised, even though you hardly ever are. I get it. It's risky to continue to be engaged and to continue to put your heart and soul into a situation that you can't control. It's like standing in the rain and somebody's standing next to you and they have the umbrella and you have to convince them to open the umbrella so you don't get wet. That's a crazy situation. You need to be able to have your own umbrella, open it up, not get wet, walk away. If they insist on staying in the rain and getting wet, maybe they like it. I don't know, but you've said your piece. You can't make them come in out of the rain. You can't put yourself at risk, even though rain's not that risky. I know that, but uh, I don't want to think of another example. And um, you can't put yourself at risk in order to help them if your helping is not helping. And the yoga teachers call this idiot compassion. There's such a thing as having idiot compassion, where you recklessly put yourself or others at risk just in order to help somebody else when your help isn't doing that much good. More about that in a little bit. Another way to make yourself miserable is to try to make other people happy. I am going to make you be happy, and I'm not going to be happy until you're happy. And then you get mad at them for not being happy. Number one, some people just aren't that comfortable being happy. It's more familiar to them to not be happy. They are happy with that. <laughs> and some people are just naturally wired as systems analysts. And so in whichever situation they find themselves, they find the three things that are wrong or not being done well in each situation. And they will make a report, usually verbally. Um, <laughs> In whatever situation, they're like, this restaurant is crazy. I can't believe they're letting people do, and I don't like this soup. I could make this soup a lot. Let me go back in the kitchen and tell the chef how to do this kind of soup because I don't know. And, you know, those people can be irritating, but they're also very useful because if you have a situation you're not sure what's wrong, bring them in and they'll tell you. Another technique people have of making themselves miserable is to try to control what people think of them or how they respond. You know, uh, I went to Al-Anon for a long time because I was a college chaplain, had a lot of drunks in the college. Uh, The South is a hard-drinking culture, and a lot of those girls were, you know, baby alcoholics. And so I had to go to Al-Anon because they were driving me crazy. And every time they said, I'm going to stop drinking now, I would be like, yay, I'm so glad that's settled. (laughs) So I took myself to Al-Anon, and I learned useful phrases, cliches to live by. Number one, what you think of me is none of my business. I loved that. That really helped me in my life. 
So you cannot control what people think of you. You can try to influence again. You know, you cannot wear dirty clothes or say horrible things. You can just do your best to help people have the impression of you that you want them to have, but you can't control it. You know what I'm saying? Some people are always going to be misunderstanding you. And some people are going to be telling lies about you. And some people are going to be just doing things you can't even imagine. Um, that when you hear about them, you'll be like, man, I never thought to try to control that because I would never have done that. What you think of me is none of my business. You practice having conversations in your head so you can control their responses. So you practice a certain conversation. Sometimes you even practice it with a friend. What would happen if I said this? And what would happen if I said that? But most of the time we do it in our own head. We have these conversations in our own head. A client of mine called it watching Skull Cinema. She said I was up all night last night watching Skull Cinema. But, you know, you have this conversation with a person you know well in your head, and you kind of know what they're going to say. So you go, okay, I'm going to say this, and then they're going to say that, and then I'm going to say this, and then they're going to say that. I'm going to say this. And then you have this fight with them in your head. And then you're mad when they come home from work because... You've had this fight, but they were not there (laughs) for it. So just when you have these practice conversations in your head, you just have to remind yourself that they need to catch up because they weren't there. Another technique for misery is to try to help somebody with your idea of what help they need before they have asked for your help. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where someone snaps at you inexplicably and and you say, I was just trying to help. You were helping before you were asked to help. You were helping in a way that you thought would help, but it wasn't the kind of help they needed or wanted. So number one, you wait till they ask for help. And sometimes they never will and you just have to watch them struggle. And sometimes you could say, would you like some help? And a lot of times they'll go, no. And, that, and then you back off. You go, okay. But then, you know, they know that you think you have help for them, and then they're going to be just irritated because you think you know what they should do, and they're just not going to ask. Sometimes even when people do ask for your help, they don't really want it especially when that help is in the form of advice. It's very difficult not to give advice, especially when people say, what would you do? Really, I'm here to tell you that even when they ask you, even when they're paying you $100 an hour for that advice, they don't want it. It Took me 15 years to remember that. And now I'm up here giving advice, you know. It's just fun for me, and if you can find anything useful in it, great. (laughs) And sometimes um, you'll find a person who does it perfectly. Like, I had this mother-in-law when I was married to her son for 17 years. She was fabulous, and she... She was one of those people that took up no psychic space. You know how some people, they, they're in your space and they take up a lot of room? And a lot of times that's okay. But she just took up no room at all. I don't know how she did it. And I would say, Wilma, how do I burp this baby? 
when she because she would come and stay with me for a couple months when I had a uh, my two sons. How 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 do I is this a better way or is this a better way? She said either way it's fine. She would make me ask her three times before she'd give me any advice. It was lovely, and I appreciated it very much. Because sometimes when you try to help somebody before they're asked, your message, your message to them is, you can't do this. Let me take over because you're incompetent. That's the subtext. And that's why they snap at us when we do it. Um, a good way to allow people their own struggle, to allow them to figure things out, allow them to have a sense of their own agency is to say to them this. You know, a lot of us are helping people. We're helping people. And so people come to us and they have, um, they're in a state. And they go, I don't know what And so we put whatever we're doing down and go, and get up and go fix it. Am I right? So here's something, here's an alternative. I'm going to ask you to repeat this after me. You say this. Wow, that's a problem. What are you going to do? Does that feel wicked? It feels wicked to say that to some of us, those of us who are firstborns. But really, it, it enables people's sense of agency if you let them figure it out. This one woman that I counseled a long time ago, many um, states away, felt her husband was so helpless that when he left her for a younger woman and moved in a couple blocks down the road, she still made him a plate every time she made dinner and took it down there to him. Yeah. And so I'm not sure whether she was underscoring his sense of helplessness or whether she was just, you know, wanting to see him or I, I don't even know what her message was, but it wasn't right. So when you offer help, think of yourself as being a good steward of your time and energy. Most of us are good stewards with our money. We invest it right, we save it, we spend it carefully. Um, but we don't do that with our money. We'll just toss whole days and hours of our lives into being distressed about a certain situation we can do nothing about. Think of your time and energy and love as money and see if you would spend it on that. And some of us don't understand. Family systems theory tells us that when you help a family, what you do is you spend most of your energy trying to help the healthiest members of that family and not the unhealthiest members because the unhealthiest members of a family or a community, etc., you could prob or you know, you know people like this in your family, you could give them all your money, you could give them all your time, you could just pretty much follow them around hour by hour and it would not help them. And then you have another person that you can just give them a certain amount of money or a certain amount of energy or a certain amount of time, and it will catapult them from one level to another. Your help will do a lot of good. 
And if it were money that you were thinking of, you would certainly spend it that way. So think about your energy that way too and help the people for whom it will do the most good, people who will benefit the most from your help after they've asked you for it, not before. Um, I'm a big believer in control. And I have some more suggestions about trying to control things that cannot be controlled. But I'm kind of at the end of the time for this sermon. So I'm going to have to preach these pages another time. <laughs> and, um, and I'll look forward to giving y'all some more advice. <laughs> Please say with me the words by which we extinguish this chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Sing with me if you care to. I know this rose will open. I know my fear will burn away. I know my soul will unfurl its wings. I know this rose will open. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at www.austinuu.org.